Dear supporters of BLC, if you adore BLC and our free black history and audiobook content, donate via Patreon or get a print copy of the world-famous art pieces, The Morrow of Tradition by Charles Chestnut and Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs, bound together into just one practical book. The Morrow of Tradition by Charles Chestnut and Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs, bound together into just one practical book in the link below. Preface and Chapter 1 of The Marrow of Tradition This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White The Marrow of Tradition by Charles Waddell Chestnut Preface I like you and your book ingenious hone in whose capacious all-embracing leaves the very marrow of traditions shone charles lamb to the editor of the everyday book chapter one at break of day stay here beside her major i shall not be needed for an hour yet meanwhile i'll go downstairs and snatch a bit of sleep or talk to old jane the night was hot and sultry. Though the windows of the chamber were wide open and the muslin curtains looped back, not a breath of air was stirring. Only the shrill chirp of the cicada and the muffled croaking of the frogs in some distant marsh broke the night silence. The heavy scent of magnolias overpowering even the strong smell of drugs in the sick room suggested death and funeral wreaths, sorrow and tears the long home, the last sleep. The major shivered with apprehension as the slender hand which he held in his own contracted nervously and in a spasm of pain clutched his fingers with a vice-like grip. Major Carteret, though dressed in brown linen, had thrown off his coat for greater comfort. The stifling heat, in spite of the palm-leaf fan which he plied mechanically, was scarcely less oppressive than his own thoughts. Long ago, while yet a mere boy in years, he had come back from Appomattox to find his family, one of the oldest and proudest in the state, hopelessly impoverished by the war, even their ancestral home swallowed up in the common ruin. His elder brother had sacrificed his life on the bloody altar of the lost cause, and his father, broken and chagrined, died not many years later leaving the major the last of his line. He had tried in various pursuits to gain a foothold in the new life, but with indifferent success until he won the hand of Olivia Merkel, whom he had seen grow from a small girl to glorious womanhood. With her money he had founded the Morning Chronicle, which he had made the leading organ of his party and the most influential paper in the state. The fine old house in which they lived was hers, in this very room she had first drawn the breath of life. It had been their nuptial chamber, and here, too, within a few hours, she might die, for it seemed impossible that one could long endure such frightful agony and live. One cloud alone had marred the otherwise perfect serenity of their happiness. Olivia was childless. To have children to perpetuate the name of which she was so proud to write it still higher on the roll of honor 
had been his dearest hope. His disappointment had been proportionately keen. A few months ago, this dead hope had revived, and altered the whole aspect of their lives. But as time went on, his wife's age had begun to tell upon her, until even Dr. Price, the most cheerful and optimistic of physicians, had warned him, while hoping for the best, to be prepared for the worst. To add to the danger, Mrs. Carteret had only this day suffered from a nervous shock, which, it was feared, had hastened by several weeks the expected event. Dr. Price went downstairs to the library, where a dim light was burning. An old black woman dressed in gingham frock, with a red bandana handkerchief coiled around her head by way of turban, was seated by an open window. She rose and curtsied as the doctor entered, and dropped into a willow rocking chair near her own. "'How did this happen, Jane?' he asked in a subdued voice, adding with assumed severity, "'You ought to have taken better care of your mistress.' "'Now look here, Dr. Price,' returned the old woman in an unctuous whisper. "'You don't want to come talking none of your foolishness about my not taking care of Miss Livy. "'She never would have said such a thing. Seven or eight months ago, when she sent for me, I says to her, says I, "'Lord, Lord, honey, you don't tell me that after all these long, weary years of waiting, "'the good Lord has done heard your prayer and is going to send you the child you've been wanting so long and so bad?' Bless his holy name. Will I come and nurse your baby? Why, honey, I nursed you, and nursed your mammy through her last sickness, and laid her out when she died. I wouldn't let nobody else nurse your baby, and moreover, I'm going to come and nurse you too. You're young side of me, Miss Livy, but you're overly old to be having your first baby, and you'll need somebody round, honey, what knows all about the family, and their way, and their weaknesses, and I don't know who that be, if it wasn't me. Indeed, Mammy Jane, says she, there ain't nobody else I'd have but you. You can come as soon as you wanna, and stay as long as you mind to. And here I is, and here I'm gonna stay. For Miss Livy is my old mistress's daughter, and my old mistress was good to me, and there ain't none of her folks gonna suffer if old Jane can help it. Your loyalty does you credit, Jane, observed the doctor. But you haven't told me yet what happened to Mrs. Carteret today. Did the horse run away, or did she see something that frightened her? No, sir. The horse didn't get scared of nothing. But Miss Libby did see something, or somebody, and it wasn't no fault of mine, nor her neither. It goes further back, sir, further than this day or this year. Does you remember the time when my old mistress, Miss Libby upstairs, Mammy died? No? Well, you was probably way to school then, studying to be a doctor, but I'll tell you all about it. When my old mistress, Miss Elizabeth Merkel, and a good mistress she was, took sick for the last time, her sister Polly, old Miss Polly Ochiltree, what is now, come to the house to help nurse her. Miss Livy upstairs yonder was about six years old then, the sweetest little angel you ever laid eyes on. And on her dying bed, Miss Elizabeth asked Miss Polly for to stay here and take care of her child. Miss Polly, she promised. She was a widow for the second time and didn't have no children and could just as well come as not. But there was trouble after the funeral, and it happened right here in this library. Ma Sam was sitting by the table 
when Miss Polly come downstairs, slow and solemn, and stood there in the middle of the floor, all in black, till Ma Sam sought a chair for her. Well, Samuel, says she, now that we've done all we can for poor Lisbeth, it only means for us to consider Livia's future. Ma Sam nodded his head, but didn't say nothing. I don't need to tell you, says she, that I'm willing to carry out the wishes of my dead sister and sacrifice my own comfort and make myself your housekeeper and your child's nurse for my dear sister's sake. It was her dying wish, and on it I will act, if it is also yon. Ma Sam didn't want Miss Polly to come, sir, for he didn't like Miss Polly. He was scared of Miss Polly. I don't wonder, yawned the doctor, if she was anything like she is now. Worse, sir, for she was younger and stronger. She always would have her say, no matter about what, in her own way, no matter who posed her. She had already been in the house for a week, and Ma Sam knowed if she once come to stay, she'd be the mistress of everybody in it, and him too. But what could he do but say yes? Then it is understood, is it, says Miss Polly when he spoke, that I'm to take charge of the house? All right, Polly, says Ma Sam with a deep sigh. Miss Polly allowed he was sighing for my poor dead mistress, for she didn't have no idea of his feelings towards her. She always did allow that all the gentlemen was in love with her. You won't find much to do, Ma Sam went on, for Julia is a good housekeeper and can tend to most everything, under your directions. Miss Polly stiffened up like a ramrod. It must be understood, Samuel, says she, that when I assumes charge of your house, there ain't going to be no divided responsibility. And as for this Julia, me and her couldn't get along together nohow. If I stays, Julia goes. When Ma Sam heard that, he felt better and commenced to pick up his courage. Miss Polly had showed her hand too plain. My mistress hadn't got cold yet, and Miss Polly, who'd been a widow for two years this last time, was already figuring on taking a place for good, and she didn't want no other woman round the house that Ma Sam might take an interest in. My dear Polly, says Ma Sam, quite determined, I couldn't possibly send Julia away. Fact is, I couldn't get along without Julia. She'd been running this house like clockwork before you come, and I likes her ways. My dear dead Elizabeth sought a heap of stow by Julia, and I'm going to keep her here for Elizabeth's sake. Miss Polly's eyes flashed fire. Ah, says she, I see, I see. You prefers her housekeeping to mine. Indeed. That is a fine way to talk to a lady, and a heap of respect you has got for the memory of my poor dead sister. Ma Sam knowed what she loud she seed wasn't so, but he didn't let on, for it only made him the safer. He was willing for her to imagine what she pleased, just so long as she kept out of his house and let him alone. No, Polly, says he, getting bolder as she got madder. They ain't no use talking. Nothing in the world will make me part with Julia. Miss Polly, she read and she pitched, but Ma Sam held on like grim death. Miss Polly wouldn't give in neither, and so she finally went away. They made some kind of arrangement afterwards, and Miss Polly took Miss Livy to her own house. Ma Sam paid her board and allowed Miss Polly something for taking care of her. And Julia stayed? 
Julia stayed, sir, and a couple of years later her child was born, right here in this house. But you said, observed the doctor, that Mrs. Ochiltree was in error about Julia. Yes, sir, so she was, when my old mistress died. But this was two years after, and what has to be has to be. Julia had an easy time. She had a black gal to wait on her, a buggy to ride in, and everything she wanted. Everybody supposed my son would give her a house and lot, or leave her something in his will. But he died suddenly and didn't leave no will, and Miss Polly got herself appointed guardian to young Miss Livy, and drive Julia and her youngin out of the house, and lived here in this house with Miss Livy till Miss Livy married Major Carteret. And what became of Julia? asked Dr. Price. Such relations, the doctor knew very well, had been all too common in the old slavery days, and not a few of them had been projected into the new era. Sins, like snakes, die hard. The habits and customs of a people were not to be changed in a day, nor by the stroke of a pen. As family physician and father confessor by brevet, Dr. Price had looked upon more than one hidden skeleton, and no one in town had had better opportunities than old Jane for learning the undercurrents in the lives of the old families. Well, resumed Jane, everybody supposed after what had happened that Julia'd keep on living easy, for she was young and good-looking, but she didn't. She tried to make a living sewing, but Miss Polly wouldn't let the best white folks hire. Then she took up washing, but didn't do no better at that. And by and by she got so discouraged that she married a shiftless yellow man and died of consumption soon after, and was about as well off, for this man couldn't hardly feed her nohow. And the child? One of the northern white lady teachers at the mission school took a liking to little Janet and put her through school, and then sent her off to the north for the study to be a school teacher. When she come back, instead of teaching, she married old Adam Miller's son. The rich stevedore's son, Dr. Miller? Yes, sir, that's the man. You knows him. This here boy was just going away for the study to be a doctor, and he married this Janet and took her away with him. They went off to Europe or I-Rope or O-Rope or somewhere or another, way off yonder, and come back here last year and started this here hospital and school for to train the black gals for nurses. He's a very good doctor, Jane, and is doing a useful work. Your chapter of family history is quite interesting. I knew part of it before, in a general way. But you haven't yet told me what brought on Mrs. Carteret's trouble. I'm just coming to that this minute, sir. What I've been telling you is all part of it. This here Janet, what's Miss Libby's half-sister, is as much like her as if they was twins. Folks sometimes takes them for one another. I suppose it tickles Janet most to death, but it do make Miss Libby rippin'. And then, way back yonder, just after the wall, when the old Carteret mansion had to be sold, Adam Miller bought it. And this here Janet and her husband has been living at it ever since old Adam died, about a year ago. And that makes the Major mad, because he don't want to see colored folks living in an old family mansion what he was born in. And moreover, and that's the worst of all, whilst Miss Libby ain't had no chillin' before, this here sister of hern has got a fine-looking little yellow boy what favors the family so that if Miss Libby'd see the child anywhere, it'd most break her heart for to think about her not having no children herself. 
So today, when Miss Libby was out riding and met this here Janet with her boy, and when Miss Libby got to studying about her own chances and how she might not come through safe, she just had a fit of hysterics right there in the buggy. She was most home, and William got her here, and you knows the rest. Major Carteret, from the head of the stairs, called the doctor anxiously. You had better come along up now, Jane, said the doctor. For two long hours they fought back the grim specter that stood by the bedside. The child was born at dawn. Both mother and child, the doctor said, would live. Bless its little hot, exclaimed Mammy Jane as she held up the tiny mite, which bore as much resemblance to mature humanity as might be expected of an infant which had for only a few minutes drawn the breath of life. Bless its little hot! It's the very spitting image it's pappy. The doctor smiled. The major laughed aloud. Jane's unconscious witticism, or conscious flattery, whichever it might be, was a welcome diversion from the tense strain of the last few hours. Be that as it may, said Dr. Price cheerfully, and I'll not dispute it, the child is a very fine boy, a very fine boy indeed. Take care of it, major he added with a touch of solemnity, for your wife can never bear another. With the child's first cry, a refreshing breeze from the distant ocean cooled the hot air of the chamber. The heavy odor of the magnolias, with its mortuary suggestiveness, gave place to the scent of rose and lilac and honeysuckle. The birds in the garden were singing lustily. All these sweet and pleasant things found an echo in the major's heart. He stood by the window, and, looking toward the rising sun, breathed a silent prayer of thanksgiving. All nature seemed to rejoice in sympathy with his happiness at the fruition of this long-deferred hope, and to predict for this wonderful child a bright and glorious future. Old Mammy Jane, however, was not entirely at ease concerning the child. She had discovered under its left ear a small mole, which led her to fear that the child was born for bad luck. Had the baby been black, or yellow, or poor white, Jane would unhesitatingly have named, as his ultimate fate, a not uncommon form of taking off, usually resultant upon the infraction of certain laws, or, in these swift modern days, upon too violent a departure from established social customs. It was manifestly impossible that a child of such high quality as the grandson of her old mistress should die by judicial strangulation. But, nevertheless, the warning was a serious thing, and not to be lightly disregarded. Not wishing to be considered as a prophet of evil omen, Jane kept her own counsel in regard to this significant discovery. But later, after the child was several days old, she filled a small vial with water in which the infant had been washed, and took it to a certain wise old black woman, who lived on the farther edge of the town and was well known to be versed in witchcraft and conjuration. The conjure-woman added to the contents of the bottle a bit of calamus root, and one of the cervical vertebrae from the skeleton of a black cat, with several other mysterious ingredients, the nature of which she did not disclose. Following instructions given her, Aunt Jane buried the bottle in Carteret's backyard one night during the full moon, as a good-luck charm to ward off evil from the little grandson of her dear mistress, 
so long since dead and gone to heaven. End of chapter 1 Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista Dear supporters of BLC, if you adore BLC and our free black history and audiobook content, donate via Patreon or get a print copy of the world-famous art pieces, The Morrow of Tradition by Charles Chestnut and Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs, bound together into just one practical book, The Morrow of Tradition by Charles Chestnut and Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs, bound together into just one practical book in the link below.